This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land. There are chaotic scenes in Brazil as supporters of the former far-right ex-president Jair Bolsonaro storm the country's Congress building. Police are using tear gas in an attempt to repel them. Mr Bolsonaro's supporters are refusing to accept that he lost the election and they've broken through barriers and entered the Congress in the capital, Brasilia. It comes a week after the inauguration of left-wing president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. North America correspondent Carrington Clark has been watching the events unfold. Well, the scenes are eerily reminiscent of what we saw actually here in Washington, D.C. two years ago. So supporters of the former right-wing president, Jair Bolsonaro, have stormed the presidential palace in Brazil, uh, the Congress, and it appears to be also the Supreme Court. Now, many of his supporters have been angry about the results of last year's election, which took place at the end of October. It was the closest uh, election in Brazilian history. They weren't happy that their candidate had lost, but this is a major escalation. They have moved past police lines, and at the moment, at the images that we're looking at, appear to have taken control of those of those key buildings. It should be pointed out, though, unlike the situation in Washington, D.C., the reins of power have already been handed over to the new president, Lula da Silva, and it does appear that the, uh, well, the Congress was not sitting, and it doesn't appear that any members of Congress are actually at risk at this point. And Carrington, do we know where the current president, Lula da Silva, is, and indeed the former president, Jair Bolsonaro? Yeah, so we know that uh, the current president, Lula da Silva, according to government sources, is safe. He's in Sao Paulo, uh, the Sao Paulo area, um, so he does not appear to be a threat. And Jair Bolsonaro is actually here in the United States. He's in Florida. Uh, he didn't hand over the reins of power in a, the ceremony that was supposed to take place on New Year's Day, where he hands over the presidential sash to Lula da Silva. So he doesn't appear to have at least been uh, in per- Well, he wasn't there in person, so it's unclear exactly what role he might might have played uh, in uh, in pushing for this to take place, whether or not this is a spontaneous act or it's something that was strategically planned. Uh, but this is an unfolding uh, mess for Brazil at the moment. Uh, it does, as I say, have echoes of what we saw on January 6th. But at this point, it doesn't appear that it's turned deadly. But the real question is, what will be the response from President Lula da Silva to, to this breaching of these key houses of democracy? Correspondent Carrington Clark. Back home now and the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is seeing for himself the damage done by Western Australia's worst flooding on record during a visit to the Kimberley region today. As floodwaters recede, emergency authorities are getting a better understanding of the scale of devastation in the remote WA town of Fitzroy Crossing. With major roads and bridges into the region cut, crews are working around the clock flying in critical supplies as residents begin a clean-up that's anticipated to last for months. Oliver Gordon reports. In Fitzroy Crossing, much of the main road out of town is now rubble. Resident Camus Green has been out inspecting the damage. Heading east, you cannot cross past the um, Shell Road. It's basically made Highway 1. It's, yeah, it's gone. Planes and choppers have dropped in more than five tonnes of food to the isolated Kimberley community. The supplies are going to houses now full to the brim with displaced people. There's enough to go round, but Camus Green says there are challenges. They were only giving out one food pack per house and some houses had up to 20 people. I know 
a house across the road from me. They had to move out of their house because it was flooded and they got 25 people in their house and they were only given one food pack. So there's enough food going round, but it needs to be distributed differently. Yes. The devastation isn't limited to Fitzroy Crossing. Kimberley pastoralist James Camp says it's too early to tell how many head of cattle he's lost. They can survive floating for quite a long way, so they may end up downstream on the next door neighbours or even further. You, know, you won't know till we've mustered, neighbours have mustered. Then you'll start to get a picture of exactly how many you've lost. You get a, a quick picture early on just by doing paddocks that have been flooded, but you won't have a, a really good estimate until later on. He's already starting to feel the effects of isolation. I'm stuck up here. I can't, I can't go down to the Fitzroy Valley and help out down there. But, and also I've got my own problems here to deal with and no real way of, of sorting them out myself anyway. It's too wet to get anywhere. So, yeah, just a, a, a lot of anxiety at the moment. But um, watch and wait. That's all you can do. He hopes Australians keep those affected by the Kimberley floods front of mind. Any help or not even... Um, you know, financial um, support, just support. You know, it's a very anxious time for us while we're waiting for to find out the damage. Um, yeah, uh, don't forget about us. Back at the evacuation centre in Fitzroy Crossing, young person Shanice Collard has spent the day helping those who've been displaced. We're just all sitting at the evacuation centre here. Um, everyone looks pretty calm and now that the water's all gone down and I think everyone just want to go home. But like Beef has said, they need to wait for the rapid response team to go in and assess the whole houses and whatever. After seeing her community come together over the last few days, she's feeling okay about the prospect of many months rebuilding. Fitzroy is going into a good recovery, I reckon. The community's all come involved and all working together, and that's really good in this time of crisis. Fitzroy Crossing resident Shanice Collard ending Oliver Gordon's report. In the Northern Territory, police are blaming rising crime rates on youth offenders playing cat and mouse with them. But senior Indigenous leaders think the crime wave is primarily being driven by a widening poverty gap. They're appealing for more investment in family support, training and jobs programs. And a former young offender agrees, as Jane Barden reports. Across the Territory, the police are in a pitched battle with youth offenders, stealing cars and trashing businesses. Police Commissioner Jamie Chalker. It's become a bit of a game and it's one that we can't tolerate as a community. 17-year-old Brian, not his real name, has just been released from Darwin's Dondale Youth Detention Centre to his hometown of Tennant Creek after a sentence for breaking, entering and stealing. He started getting into trouble at 13 and did think some of it was fun. Showing off to all my friends and stuff. But he says mostly he did it because he didn't have a safe home. Started running away and a lot of alcoholics around the house. I had to stay at my friend's house. I was only about 10 years old. My mother was in um, Darwin at the time. What was it that started you breaking in? So I just found bad friends, that's all. And then got mixed up and involved in doing bad things. And I got taught to smoke drugs and that from my, one of my friends. That, and I got a bit addicted to that. It was all like that, stealing drugs and yeah. It was like an excuse to everything in life. Now he's trying to turn his life around. Yeah, it wasn't good. I had to learn my own lesson. What I do and just how to get out of this mess. I just try to change this all, try to get a job, try and get involved in something else new. Brian says he got support from an uncle, but he can't see much other help for kids like him. There's not pretty much for young people to try and like, get a work experience or something. I do a mechanic job, something like that. 
What do you think the town needs to help young people like yourself? They need someone older to talk to them, good role models, something to just give them more confidence that they can do to themselves. 96% of the kids in NT youth detention are Indigenous. Tenant Creek traditional owner John Jacamara Fitz says social breakdown is causing the crime. It's really um, epidemic. It's happening, you know, in other towns, um, Alistair and Catherine. The alcohol, the drugs, um, there's no place to sleep at home. He blames a widening poverty gap and the resulting community anger. There is that big gap, you know, we've got the middle class and the pretty much the poor, yeah. And, you know, this is due to our community um, organisations and, you know, all the companies that come to town, they sort of bring in their own people. We need to work on getting our locals work. Um, you know, these kids are hungry, the families are starving too. John Fitz helps run a men's shed where former offenders do activities like fixing bikes, but he says there aren't enough support and training programmes. We need to work on our younger community members so we can get them working. But, you know, we need the family support too. The NT government says it has more than doubled investment in young offender programmes, including vocational training, to $17 million a year. I know this sounds like a lot of money around, but there isn't, Jane. It's just going to get worse. Brian is determined not to go back to detention, but he's worried many of the kids he met there will. A lot of people my young age don't even want to be in Dundale. So yeah, they're trying to change their life, but I don't know if they can. Tennant Creek teenager Brian talking to Jane Barden. In the United States, House Republicans insist they can work together in the wake of a messy internal fight for the Speaker's job. Kevin McCarthy finally secured the position over the weekend after an historic 15 rounds of voting. But his victory came at a cost, and there's already division in the party over how agreement was reached. Here's North America correspondent Jade McMillan. In the aftermath of a dramatic week in Congress, one moment captures the scale of the chaos. In video still being played on repeat in the US, Republican Mike Rogers is shown being physically restrained by a colleague on the House floor during a heated exchange over the Speaker's job. Texas Republican Chip Roy has told CNN a bit of conflict is necessary. Some of the tensions you saw on display... Uh, when we saw some of the, you know, the interactions there between Mike Rogers and Matt Gaetz, uh, you know, some of that is we need a little of that. We need a little of this sort of breaking the glass in order to get us to the table in order to fight for the American people and to change the way this place is dysfunctional. With only a narrow majority in the House of Representatives and opposition from within, Californian Kevin McCarthy endured 15 ballots before finally winning over a group of right-wing Republicans who'd been opposing him. One of his closest allies, Kentucky Congressman Andy Barr, argues the party can now move on. The process that we went through this week was quite healthy from the standpoint of getting all of these issues resolved now so that we can have a template going forward to come together as a conference. But Mr McCarthy has only overcome his first big test and already there's growing concern about a list of concessions he had to make in order to get the numbers. They include a series of changes to how the House operates and a commitment to pursue deep spending cuts. South Carolina Republican Nancy Mace has told CBS she's worried the hardliners have extracted more that the rest of the party doesn't know about yet. 
they're the ones that are saying they were, quote, fighting the swamp, but then yet went and tried to act like, you know, like they actually are the swamp by trying to do these backroom deals. And we don't know what they got or didn't get. We haven't seen it. We don't have any idea what promises were made or what gentlemen's handshakes were made. We just we just have no idea at this point. As Republicans try to move on with their stated aim of holding the Biden administration to account, immigration is among their top priorities. Joe Biden is visiting the Mexico border today for the first time since taking office. The trip is partially aimed at blunting criticism of his border policies as the number of people crossing into the US surges and amid a backlash from some Democrats to a series of new measures that will deny more people entry. But with the House now in Republican control, the president can expect a lot more scrutiny in the months ahead. This is Jade McMillan in Washington reporting for AM. Well, for a little more on the consequences of California-based Kevin McCarthy's messy rise to the powerful position of Speaker, I spoke earlier to Mark Berabak, who's a columnist with the LA Times. He's for years and years and years wanted to be Speaker of the House in the worst way, and that's exactly how he accomplished it. He ended up essentially giving away the store and and, and crawling into the position, not not striding uh, boldly into it, but crawling uh, into it on his hands and his knees. It was it was a pretty pretty humiliating spectacle all around. What are the consequences for his term as Speaker of the House because of the way that he arrived in the position? Well, you know, there's an expression that, that Republicans like to throw at other Republicans who they don't think are are, are quite uh, as pure. They call them Republicans in name only. And I think Kevin McCarthy has managed to uh, make himself a speaker in name only. He's given away so much uh, to a, a small band of, of right wing zealots who held him hostage that it's going to be really difficult for him to get anything done. He's he's basically he's basically going to be living in a straitjacket of his own design. He's given away so much power, uh, including not least the ability of any member, any one member of his Republican conference at any time to call what would essentially amount to a vote of no confidence. So, uh, you know, you talk about a Pyrrhic victory. I mean, this is this is just a classic of the sort. And how is all this going to affect the operation of government, the, the routine business of the House? Well, as I said, you're going to see a small group of of zealots holding uh, the House and to some extent the country hostage. I mean, these are folks who do not want to make government function. They were elected because they want to throw sand in the gears, if you will. They they thrive on dysfunctionality. And there are certain must-pass pieces of legislation, including not least coming up by the end of this year, a requirement to raise the debt ceiling. And just to be clear, we're not talking about giving the government license to spend more money. We're talking about the government meeting its obligations that it has already made. So we're talking economic catastrophe if we don't raise that debt ceiling. And these are folks who have no interest. Like I said, they have no interest in governing. All they want to do is throw sand in the gears. They would like nothing more than to burn Washington down if they could get away with it. And we're very likely to see them try. And of course, the other Republican that we're watching is uh, the former president, Donald Trump, and whether he's going to run again. What's the relationship between Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump? Uh, That of a servant and a supplicant to his master. Uh, Kevin McCarthy showed for a very brief glimmer, uh, just the slightest hint of backbone standing up to President Trump uh, amid the January 6th insurrection, not long after he, he, he 
scurried down to uh, Mar-a-Lago on, on bended knee to seek the president's apology when he saw that the president was going to get away for all intents, at least amongst the Republican base with uh, stirring that, that insurrection. So Kevin McCarthy is very much in, in the president's thrall, and he made a point of thanking former President Trump for delivering the votes he needed to become speaker. So uh, as I said, he has been a servant. He has been a supplicant. There's no reason to believe that that's going to change. If anything, he may feel even more beholden to the former president than he did before. That's LA Times columnist Mark Berabak. Australia's biggest animal welfare organisation is struggling under an influx of animals and not enough help to care for them. The RSPCA's volunteer numbers haven't recovered to pre-COVID levels, but at the same time, more owners have been giving up their animals, as Annie Guest reports. These shelter animals are cherished by retired vet nurse Kerry Latimer. The 74-year-old volunteers at the RSPCA. Oh, I love the job. Uh, This is the perfect job for me. How often do you come in, Kerry? I just do one afternoon shift a week because I've got grandkids and other things to do, but I do love it. And the dogs appreciate you being here and particularly the staff out here are so thankful and grateful for you being here that it just makes your day when you go home. You're tired but happy. He's very hungry. I'll have to feed him. Down, down. Sit. He seems uh, friendly. He's (laughs) over-friendly. It's four and a half years since he started helping at the RSPCA in Brisbane. Go in, check who's here from last week, say good day. When you say go in and say good day, you're not talking about the people, are you? I am not. No, I go and I go and sit down. I get licked, and the tails are wagging, and they're jumping all over me. It's all in a day's work, and it's it's quite enjoyable. People like Kerry Latimer are in short supply right around the country. Queensland volunteer coordinator Ashley Snow says. The pandemic has had a lasting impact on RSPCA shelters. COVID was tricky with volunteers. We had a volunteer force of nearly 5,000 before COVID. Um, Post-COVID now we're sitting at about 3,000 volunteers throughout the state. So we lost a lot of volunteers throughout the state, which was really tough because that affects every, every avenue of operations, basically. At the same time, more animals need care partly because some owners resumed more work or travel after lockdowns or they couldn't afford their pet. So since July, we've seen a spike in our um, surrender numbers coming into care. So every month we receive a couple of hundred applications to surrender because with the financial crisis, with the rental crisis, so sometimes people just can't afford to look after their animals anymore. Their living and home situation might change as well. It's hard on animals, owners and RSPCA staff like Ashley Snow. It's a really sad experience for everyone involved. No one wants to give up their animal. I, if you've had an animal before, it's you become really attached to it and you can see that in a lot of people when they bring their animals in. You can see it in their face, their emotion. They, It's really upsetting to see because they genuinely love their animals, um, so it's really tough. Good boy. The RSPCA is calling for more volunteers to care for these animals while the organisation finds what it hopes will be forever homes for them. We'll give him a becky now. He's quite obedient, isn't he? Good boy.
RSPCA volunteer Kerry Latimer ending that report by Annie Guest in Brisbane. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.